it's nice to be back. And um, I understand this is your last time here, huh? You're moving to your new church. That's exciting. It's wonderful. I feel honored to be able to give the last talk <laughs> in this place. Um, since it's the holiday season, I have been just so bombarded with the many things to purchase and eat and do. And I was just home visiting my family who live in Connecticut, and it was just one meal after the next, it felt like. And um, so I thought what I would do is talk a bit about greed and wanting and desire, a little bit about consumerism, all sorts of things. We'll see how it goes. Um, One of the things that I did recently was I taught a class that I called Greed Management. And um, we want to, you know, there's so many anger management classes, and we thought it would be really interesting to explore greed. And we did, it was, it was a, a class exploring both the spiritual and the social roots of greed. And we um, did quite a lot of exercises and um, practices, and we had people observe greed in their minds on a daily basis, and we... Um, kept greed journals and people at the end of it they um they graduated all of them and they got greed certificates for <laughs> surviving the greed class and um i i was going to bring one but i couldn't find it but it it was something like i'm now still greedy but at least i'm more aware of it <laughs> that was their certificate so I want to just start on the really individual level looking at the way that greed is in our minds and in our hearts and um, and also desire and longing, wanting, all of these things. And as you know, the Buddha talked about this. This is probably one of the key things he would talk about, which was um, the way that our attachment causes suffering. And um, the... I was looking at um, one of the sort of root texts around what is greed, and this is what they say. Um, It's from the Visuddhimagga. It says, greed has the characteristic of grasping grasping an object. It's like bird lime, although I don't know what bird lime is, but I assume it's something very sticky. Its function is sticking, like meat put in a hot pan. Its manifestation is not giving up like the dye of lamp black. Its proximate cause is seeing enjoyment in things that lead to bondage. Swelling with the current of craving, it should be regarded as carrying beings along with with it to the states of misery as a swift-flowing river does to the great ocean. It's pretty depressing, huh? (laughs) So greed is the sticky thing. It sort of enters our mind and suddenly we want things. You know, it just like attacks us and then we're stuck with it and it's gooey and it takes us into this, into this horrible dukkha, this suffering. Because why? Because whatever we want can never permanently satisfy us. And that's the truth. And we know this because we know this from our experience all the time. Greed, when you look at greed in the mind or desire, let's just start with desire because it's easier. It's, it's a very simple process and it's happening in our minds all the time. And what's happening is simply that we experience something that's pleasant. 
Okay. You're just, I don't know, you're walking down the street and you see something in a store window and it's attractive to you. And there's a feeling in the body and the mind of, oh, this is, this is nice. It's, it's just this, this, it's called Vedana. It's this pleasurable sensation of, oh, attractiveness, pleasantness. Well, the next thing that happens, and this is from the Buddhist psychology that they say, is there's that feeling of pleasantness, and the next thing is the sense of wanting it, simply because you're wanting to sustain it. No other reason than it's pleasant and you want it to continue. Well, that's, that's the wanting, but then the wanting turns to the grasping, and then you really want it, and then you can't live without it, and then it's this incredible thing that if I don't get this new DVD player, then I'm going to die. And that's, that's, I mean, it's not, it's not that dramatic often, but it's the feeling in our hearts and in our minds of, okay, there's this little thing, there's this pleasantness, I want it, I really want it. And one of the analogies that's often used when this is talked about is, it's like you say there's a pleasant object, a pen, and noticing it, no, you notice the pleasant, and then there's a reaching for it, a wanting. And then the grasping is when your hand clasps it and you've got it and you're grasping and you can't let go. And that's where there's the suffering. And I'm sure many of you have heard the analogy of the monkey traps in Thailand, how they catch the monkey, which is there's a coconut with a small, it's, it's been hollowed out and some food has been put inside, and there's a small, a banana, sorry, a banana is inside, a small little hole, and the monkey can reach its hand into the hole, grab the banana, but once it's grabbing it, it's stuck, and it's caught, and it can't get out. Now, all it has to do to get out is let go of the banana, right? But it doesn't want to, <laughs> and we don't either. And that's why we suffer, because, because we're stuck on things. This is, this is dependent origination, in, uh, or a piece of it, it, told to you in a very shortened form. It's much more complex than that. But... It's so, what's so interesting is that it's happening all the time. And of course the opposite is happening all the time too. They're seeing something unpleasant, hating it, and wanting to push it away. It's, it's, it's both of these sides of the coin, but I'm just going to focus on the wanting part. And there's something almost, um, almost childlike in this. It's like, it's just, it's like a little kid, you know. Oh, I see something pleasant. I grab onto it. I want it. It's mine. I want the pleasantness to stay. Because what's happening is, it's not like you're wanting, it's not like you're wanting the object. It's actually what you're wanting is the physical and mental thing that's happening. It's, you're wanting the pleasant feeling to stay. That's it. At least this is according to the Buddhist psychology. And um, But what we do is we make this mistake. We put it into the object. We think that it's the new you know, car or the new, I don't know, I can't think of good, good experiences. We think it's this other thing, this person. That's a good one. We think that it's the person that's going to give us, give us the pleasant experience. It's going to sustain that mental feeling, that Vedana. I, when I was doing the greed class, we, um, we had this exam for the class, which was that we had everybody meet at um, Bed Bath and Beyond. 
that had opened up near our near where I live, and um, we said, "Okay, here are the rules. For the next 20 minutes, you have to go into the store and walk around. You're not allowed to talk." Unless, you know, somebody asks you something, you can't, don't be weird. But, you know, you're not allowed to talk. You're meditating. This is walking meditation. And you're also not allowed to buy anything. You can touch. You can look, whatever. And what you have to do is simply observe the desire arising in the mind. So everybody went off. And a lot of people came back and reported that it was extremely painful and difficult. But it was so interesting. And... I did this myself, and what I noticed was just this incredible um, sort of automaticness of it. Like, I would see something attractive, and my mind would think, oh, pretty, oh, I want it, oh, I really want it, you know, and it was, it was, it was almost... It was almost I began to feel like I had like I was dealing with a child after a certain point because it just it would just see these things that it had never dreamed of before like these um, I don't know these like things that you put on top of the television so that the plants don't fall off or so I mean just these absurd things that you would never ever imagine that you would want and then suddenly oh that's attractive wait a minute I need that you know and how do we how do we make that leap from the wanting, from the like slightly enjoying or the feeling of pleasantness into the I really want it? And like I'm saying, it is like a child, but we're adults, and so we have these ways of covering up this thing. And years ago, I was at some a friend's house who had a young daughter who was about four or five, and she was just... Um, they were trying to get her to stop having her, I forget what it was, her blanket or her bottle or something when she was, when, um, cause they thought she was too old for it. And I just walked into the house to visit them to have dinner and she had, she had started screaming, I want it, I want it. And she had gotten on top of her mother's lap and started crying and holding her mother screaming, I want it, I want it, I want the blanket, I want the blanket. And then her brother, who was about two, then he felt left out, so he jumped on the mom's lap, too, and he started crying, saying, I want it, I want it. And the two of them, and this went on and on, and the mom just kept holding them and rocking them and saying, I know you want it, I know you want it, but you can't have it. And afterwards, the dad came up to me and said, oh, I'm really sorry about this. It was really embarrassing. And I said, you know what? It was great. I got to see my mind. That's what I'm like. I'm, I'm like this child that just wants and wants. I'm a pretty greedy person. <laughs> Some of you know that there are three types of people in the Buddhist psychology. There's the greedy personality type, the aversive personality type, and the deluded type. I'm the greedy type. <laughs> I want things. So we can observe this wanting in our meditation practice. Let's say we're having a really nice meditation. And, oh, wow, I'm having a moment of concentration. No, wait, I'm having five moments of concentration. This is really great. The second you enjoy it, there's this pleasant feeling in your body and mind. And you can see it. If your mind is subtle enough, you can see it. If your mind is subtle enough, you can see it when you're just in your daily life. But in your meditation practice, that's when you have this incredible laboratory where you can observe the pleasant vedana, the pleasant sensation. 
So when it comes, oh, I'm having a good meditation. There's a feeling, the sense of, mm, you know, it feels good. And then there's the next step. Oh, I really want that. Oh, I hope, I wonder if tomorrow it's going to be like this. Oh, it may be like this tomorrow, but it might not be. It might, you know, the comparing mind starts, the good wanting it to stay, wanting to hold on to it. It's, it's very fascinating. And I sometimes notice it, notice when it makes the shift from just the pleasantness into the really needing it, the, the attachment as a kind of clutching feeling in my heart. It just, it's, it, it's painful. It doesn't feel good. It feels, it feels like there's a problem, like I'm going to die if I don't have this thing. Now, what the Buddha talks about with when he, this is, I was saying this is dependent origination. With wise dependent origination, we can bring mindfulness to any point on this chain. We can bring mindfulness to the, to the feeling of pleasantness. Oh, this, this cookie sure tastes good. Feeling of pleasantness. We can bring it to the wanting. Oh, I really want the cookie. And then we can bring it to the grasping. I really need the cookie. <laughs> and it's, it's, we can do, we can bring mindfulness to any point. And when we bring the awareness there, it's, it can cut off any, it, it can cut off this sort of proliferation of the suffering. And that's what's so extraordinary about how to work with desire. We can teach ourselves to let go, and this is the basic non-clinging teaching of the Buddha. It's just pleasantness. It's just a cookie. It's just the chocolate ice cream. It's just that gorgeous person you've been staring at for weeks. It's just pleasantness. That's all it is. And we can work on these really small levels and teach our minds about the beauty and the power of renunciation. Because I think one of the most fundamental levels of the Dharma practice is the part about teaching us to renounce, to let go of the wanting for any moment other than what we have right in this second. And that's really, really powerful because we're learning to be with the really boring breath. And you know, oftentimes when you're meditating, you'd rather be fantasizing about a hundred different things or making all your plans for tomorrow or the next day or whatever it is. But what we can do is say, okay, I renounce, I let go. I notice that there's pleasant. Planning is so pleasant. I notice that it's pleasant. But I can just let go and be with nothing other than this moment. And this is training the mind in renunciation. This is training the mind in non-greed. Here's, here's what the same guy said about non-greed. Non-greed has the characteristic of the mind's lack of desire for an object, or it has the characteristic of non-adherence, like a water drop on a lotus leaf. So when the mind isn't greedy, it's like something just rolls off it. Its function is not to lay hold or not to to grasp, like a liberated bhikkhu monk. (laughs) It's a weird analogy. Um, 
it's manifested as not not taking shelter, not holding on, not cleaving, as a man who has fallen into filth will not cling to it. So you fall into something. You're so not greedy that if you're stuck in the mud, of course you want to get out. That's, that's the analogy about what is non-greed. Now, the thing about you can be aware, as I was saying, there's this chain where you can be aware at the you can be aware at the pleasant, you can be aware at the wanting, you can be aware at the grasping. It's actually not so difficult to teach the mind to have some freedom when it's wanting. I was um, I was sitting a retreat. Joel was there just about two. I don't know. Three, six weeks ago, something, and um, we were. I had. Um, I was having this incredible experience of longing on this retreat. It was unbelievable. It was probably the worst retreat I've ever sat. It was ten days with Ajahn Amaro. I mean, it was a wonderful retreat, but the longing was so much suffering, and I got to experience how horrible wanting can be because when you can't have it. You know, and um, the object of the desire was that I had want, was wanting to be with my boyfriend. I didn't want to be at the retreat. I thought this was this was a um, why, how could I have been so stupid to want to be at the retreat? <laughs> and um, and so I watched what happened. I said, "Okay, Diana, this is your object of meditation. This is what you have for this whole week." And I sat there and I watched how much suffering it caused. And I said, just bring your mindfulness to it. Bring your attention to it. So I slowly began to bring my attention. And it was really hard because I really believed it. I mean, that's the thing with wanting. You really think you need the object. And I kept thinking and I kept fantasizing. And I kept, okay, no, just just open to it. And what began to happen was slowly over time, over about about the sixth day, suddenly I found that my mindfulness had become so spacious and so aware, but I was still wanting him, and I was still longing, but it was sort of like this dull ache in the background, like, oh, there's the wanting, there's the wanting. But So you can have a mind that is spacious, and really that's not so that's not, it's not caught in the wanting. It just is wanting and knowing that it's wanting because that's all it is, really. But then what we can experience is what the Buddha talked about with the bliss of letting go. The experience of equanimity, having a mind that's so completely free of the need of... Mm, of either clinging or pushing away, but just completely willing to be present. Sometimes wanting is covering up something. Sometimes wanting is we actually feel bad, and then we want. It sort of displaces, and we think that we want the cookie, but it's actually that we feel horrible. I got to experience this quite a bit when I was meditating in Burma because we could only eat for a certain amount of time. We would wake up in the morning and um, from, well, you'd wake up, you could eat at sunrise, so that was 5 o'clock, and then at 12 o'clock you couldn't eat. So we had a breakfast meal and then we had a lunch meal. But for about four or five hours in between, you could eat. And 
um, so I would be meditating. I was often meditating in my little hut, and um, suddenly I would be, let's say I'd be doing walking, it usually happened when I was doing walking meditation, and suddenly the desire for food would arise so strongly. And I keep using cookies, one, because I like cookies, but they're just, they're like the perfect thing because we just, oh, everybody desires cookies. <laughs> so so um, if you don't eat sugar, these are unsweetened cookies, whatever. But um, so I had this little, I had this box that I kept these cookies that I love called Bazon cookies, and they were these sugar cookies. And I didn't really like the Burmese food, but these cookies were really good. And I would keep them in this jar. And so suddenly I'd be doing walking and I'd be doing lifting, moving, placing, cookie. And that would cop into my mind and it would this, this image of this cookie. And the, you know, usually, initially what I would do is like, oh, I'll just go get a cookie. So I'd go and I'd eat it. But I began to see, like, wait a minute, this can be a practice. This can be a really interesting exploration of the wanting mind. So I would do lifting, moving, placing. I want the cookie. Wanting, wanting, feeling the pain, feeling the desire, trying to get it, get it. Oh, it's disappearing a little. Noticing it disappearing, it's disappearing. Oh, oh, it's gone. Lifting, moving, placing. Or lifting, moving, placing, cookie. Oh, my God, I need the cookie. I have to get the cookie. Running over, grab the cookie, eat it, shovel it in my mouth, and feel completely dissatisfied. Oh, Dissatisfied, that's interesting. Observation. Going back another day. Lifting, moving, placing. I want the cookie. Okay, just sit with the feeling. Sitting with it. Noticing. What does that feel like? Noticing the longing. And then, oh, I feel lonely. I'm really lonely. Wow, I was going to eat the cookie because I thought I was lonely. I mean, because I thought I wanted the cookie, but actually I was lonely. These are games, in a way, that we can play with ourselves to help us understand our minds and our hearts. And to see that desire is just this automatic kid-like process that comes up in our mind time and time again. And that we can, we can have peace and freedom amidst all the desire. So... I want to offer some ways of working with greed. Noticing it, of course, is the first one. Noticing, as we know, is the first thing we do with everything in our meditation practice. But sometimes it's really hard. A lot of the traditional texts teach us that an antidote to greed is um, reflections on impermanence and death and the disgustingness of the body. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with that particular meditation, but in our greed management class, we made everybody do it, which was you imagine a person that you find very attractive, and then you can they have this all written out. And um, actually, it's in the Satipatthana Sutta, for any of you who are interested. Um, and it says, okay, you know, start with the top of the body, and you notice that the body is just hair, and that there's, you know, there's tears and sweat and um, spit and earwax and you know and it goes into all the really disgusting fluids of the body and (laughs) you go through it it's this very systematic list and this is something that they used to give to monks in the old olden buddhist days to get rid of lust 
or um, or not really get rid of it, to work with it, I guess. And um, so they would say to them, okay, now just start, and you visualize this beautiful person that you're lustful for and notice that they're actually just, um, you know, a spit and <laughs> snot and all these disgusting things. And if you do this, and I recommend it if you're feeling very lustful, it will definitely cut through. But this is one way of working with greed. Or say, let's say you really, really want that new... Um, the new TV, well, you can say, oh, it's just a metal wire and some glass and some wood. And, you know, why am I interested in this thing? It's just, it's just a bunch of stuff. Um, being kind to yourself about greed. That's what I noticed so much when I was in the mall. Just there's so much conditioning to want in our culture. It's just <laughs> it's telling us all the time, buy, go shopping. So... The fact that we want things all the time and that there's this process inside us that's happening all the time is we just want things. It's okay. It's just how we are. We don't have to follow every desire. You don't have to follow a desire to make it go away. That's one of the revolutionary teachings I learned from Joseph Goldstein. He said, you don't have to follow a desire to make it go away. You could just... Notice, oh, there's a desire. It might go away on its own. Actually, noticing works better, believe it or not. Um, Checking into if there is something going on underneath, like a feeling of loneliness. A lot of people, you know, people eat because they're depressed or angry or sad or whatever it is. So, So if you can get to that feeling that's underneath, sometimes the desire for the thing goes away. Um, learning to really identify that feeling of wanting, that pleasant feeling. I mean, you can just, well, we can experience it right now. Like, everybody for a moment, just close your eyes and just imagine something that you want. It could be a person, it could be a thing. Just let something come to mind. And see if you can notice how your body is feeling or how your mind is feeling. If there's actually a pleasurable sensation, you can open your eyes. Can you feel that pleasure, that, that, that pleasantness? It's like, mmm, yummy, I want this thing, mmm. That's it, that's it, that's just the pleasant I'm talking about. If we can get it and just catch it right there, There you go. That's bringing mindfulness to it. You don't necessarily have to go into this major proliferation about how you're going to find it and get it and all the things you're going to do with it. So really learning that feeling of recognizing that, mmm, pleasant. When I was in the mall, I would... um, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond (laughs) doing this exercise I would go up to something like oh this nice chenille comforter or something (laughs) and I'd I'd see ooh pleasant and I'd think oh there's pleasant and then another thing I'd go up to and I'd see and I'd start strategizing for how I was going to come back once the exercise was over and purchase (laughs) it right (laughs) that was I was caught with the comforter I was just noticing it was just pleasant And then noticing what it feels like when we let go. Because actually the mind feels more happy when it's released. It's like there's this peace, there's this sense of, 
I didn't need this thing to make me happy. Now, that, it's really interesting because our conditioning tells us the opposite. Our conditioning says if you get the thing, then you'll be happy. But actually, the mind is happier when it's let go. That's why equanimity is such an incredible state of being because it's a mind that's fully let go. And that mind isn't searching after an object. It's just at rest, at peace. Um, Practicing generosity is a good antidote for greed and desire. And and, um, finally, realizing, I've said this probably ten times now, but it's not the object itself. You can just say it to yourself. It's not the object that I want. The object will never satisfy. The object is changing. It's not the object I want. I learned this really significantly a few years ago on a retreat. I was um, sitting at Insight Meditation Society in the East Coast, and I had gotten to a point in my practice where I had quite a bit of energy, but often late at night I had very little concentration, so I couldn't go to sleep, but I couldn't really meditate. So I would wander around the halls quite a bit. And one day I wandered into the kitchen, which yogis were not supposed to do, but I did anyway. And um, I see the menu for the coming week. And I look on it, and it says, Pizza is coming. And I get very excited. I know many of you have practiced at IMS, but they make really good pizza, and it's all homemade. And um, so I see that it was maybe like Thursday, and I saw that it was Monday that pizza was coming. So for the next four days, did I meditate? No. <laughs> I fantasized about pizza. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing to do on retreat. <laughs> You're just meditating. So, of course, pizza is the most exciting thing that's probably happened the whole three months. And you're so excited and you just keep thinking about it and thinking about it. So I spent like four days thinking about the pizza and finally it was the day of the pizza and I got really excited and I went to the lunch um, line and I made sure that I got to the lunch line, not first because I didn't want to look too greedy and I didn't, but I didn't want to get too far because then I wouldn't get a really good piece. So I got about third or so and I got in line and I was just thinking about it and get the pizza and it was, you know, different kinds, olives and this and that. And I take it and I go outside and I sit down in the grass and it was a beautiful day and I arrange my plate and I sort of do my prayers and meditations and I sit down and I eat it and um, it was pizza, <laughs> you know, it was, it was bread and cheese and tomato sauce. It was okay. It was, it was, it was this incredible lesson for me on how we put so much into an object that really isn't deserving of it. It's just an object. It's the thing. Pizza's good. My friend says they should serve pizzas at the retreat centers every day so people would get over their stuff about pizza. (laughs) But, um, it's not the object itself that sustains the pleasant. It's thinking that the object's going to give us the happiness that continues to make us happy. The pleasantness is just inside us. We actually don't need anything other than ourselves to be happy. We don't need a new car. We don't need our children to be married. We don't need, I don't know, we all have our particular thing. We don't need that to be happy. I try to tell my mother that because she's been wanting grandchildren for a long time and I've been (laughs) 
fighting her off. Say, Mom, it's not the grandchildren you want. It's the internal happiness. It's peace. (laughs) She doesn't get it. So I just want to, I want to say a little bit about how this relates to greed in the world because it's really, really relevant. Oh, before I do, I have a little cartoon. Um, It's these two people. It's a New Yorker cartoon. And they're at a travel agent, and they're looking at all these brochures of beautiful places, and the caption says, it all looks so great, I can't wait to be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) So our society suffers quite a bit from unwise dependent origination. There's all this wanting, and then we glorify it, and it's basically consumerism is quite the religion these days. Um, The malls are the temples and churches. And, um, you know, go and shop for the war. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's really, it's, it's quite out of control, as you all are probably familiar with. And the structures of our society invite us to, um, go out and um, be greedy because that's what keeps the economy going. So here we are working with trying to practice renunciation, but every single message from every billboard, from the television, from the radio, from everything we read is telling us the opposite, is telling us to consume, to shop, to buy. And um, it's really incredibly difficult. And it's also that you know, it's like, is something going on? Are you depressed? Go out and buy a new outfit. Take yourself out to lunch. Do this. It's, it's, it's seen as the panacea for all of our problems. Shop, consume, buy. It invites the greediness. So here we are being good meditators, trying to work on it in our, in our practice, working on letting go, working on being in the present moment and our entire world is telling us the opposite. You know, I struggle with it quite a bit. I, I went home, I, I try to live it fairly simply, and at the same time, I notice in my own life wanting things. And I go home to my parents' house for Christmas, and, you know, oh, here, we're gonna, we're, here's a new, another gift. And part of me is like, oh, this is terrible. And other part's like, oh, well, I kind of like this new sweater. I got this new sweater. What do you think? I mean, it's, it's, and I see my own conditioning, and I see the way the desire works in my mind, and I want the thing. And at the same time, I'm kind of repulsed by it. And I know my, my Dharma heart knows that the sweater's not going to make me happy. But yet there's there's also something pleasant and there's nothing wrong with wanting things either it's not it's it's when it goes above and beyond it's when you think you can't live without it it's when you start doing really awful things in order to get the thing that's when it becomes a problem in a way that's when it segues into greed and i think that in the culture there's such a sense of meaninglessness for so many people i mean you're lucky you're here in this moment um in, in not this particular moment, but coming again and again to the to having having Dharma practice that fills up something that I think most people are missing in the culture, and that they're told to go shopping as the antidote, and this creates this massive polarization of wealth, and people get richer, and other people get poorer, and um, 
I've heard, you know, it's like the whole the whole west of the of the world is trying to emulate what we have here. And I was um, I was reflecting on there's a story. Some of you may know of Sulak Sivaraksa. He's a Thai um, radical Buddhist, and he he tells the story of when when they began to bring development programs to Thailand, they had a really hard time because everybody was just content. And development doesn't work if people are have uh, what they have and they're happy with it. And um, this is part of this is I think part of them having dharma in the culture, contentment, sukha. So they started this whole advertising campaign. This is in the '60s to get people dissatisfied. <laughs> And they did. And they put up billboards and say, are you sure what you have is enough? And, you know, we need more. I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing what they did. And you should see Thailand now. Thailand is absolutely extraordinarily um, sort of taken over by consumerism. There's Starbucks in Bangkok. There's actually a Starbucks at the Great Wall of China, although I think it got shut down recently. But this this... This, this sort of the needing, the, the consuming, the lifestyle that we think we need in the first world at the expense of, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> um, and the, the war, you know, I have to put in my little anti-war plug because I work for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. <laughs> but so much of the war, I think, is about, is about oil. And so the greed for oil is the structure. It's built into the very structure of our economy right now and of everything that we do. We're so dependent upon oil. So from a Dharma perspective, how might we look at this? Um, How might we look at the greater structures of greed, the greater structures of consumerism? Part of it is really about pointing this out, about being really, really clear on a public scale that um, there is the greed just we won't stand for it. And I don't know. I mean, part of it is about looking at our own lives and going, okay, where, what can I renounce? What can I give up? Um, there was something I read recently in Yes Magazine. 23 Seattle families gave up their extra car this past summer in a pilot project to demonstrate ways to ease traffic jams and reduce air pollution. At the end of the study, at least four families decided to sell their second vehicle, and six more were thinking about it. The group collectively made 200 fewer car trips, saved an average of $64, and reduced carbon dioxide emissions by 1,000 pounds for each week of the six-week trial period. Yeah, it's pretty neat. What does it mean to have less? To look at it on the cushion when we practice and see how it manifests out in the world and see ways that we can let go in our culture. And the ways that, I mean, some of you are familiar with things like the voluntary simplicity movement or um, there's, there's this place called the Center for New American Dreams. Some of you may be familiar with. Um, these are places that encourage simplicity, encourage renunciation. And I guess my point is simply that um, the outer structures affect our inner life, and the inner structures affect our outer life. 
And how can we work on aiming for a mind of freedom, a mind that's renounced, a mind that's let go, that's aware of our wanting? And how can we work on a society and help to make it so less um, needing, needing of things that aren't really going to make us happy, make it happy in the long run? And these are, these are big questions. I think I'll end here, but just to remind you that the happiness of the Dharma is the happiness beyond all happinesses. That's what the Buddha said, not me. Are you talking about attachment to your views? Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's so many. I guess views we do. Yeah. Well, the Buddha talked about that quite a bit, that the source of a lot of our suffering is our attachment to views and opinions. That's one of the main reasons that we suffer, because we think we're right. And when you're, when you're attached to your view, there's this feeling that comes in the body, like it's the pleasant feeling again. It's like, I'm right, and I'm great. <laughs> you know, I know, I know that this is right. And because there's such a strong sense of self, there's suffering that occurs. I think it's really, really important that we do a practice of flexibility around our views, of holding the space of not knowing, of remembering that as much as we think something is right, the opposite may be true. And I have to do this practice a lot because I work in political context and I'm... um, you know, I have to. I have to have my opinions. But I, ha- if I hold tightly to my opinions, I can't hear what the other person is saying, and there's no hope for reconciliation if I don't listen. So, noticing. You know what Joseph says? He says. Um, he says, if you hold tightly to views, you'll suffer, even if you're right. <laughs> yeah. Good point. <laughs> yeah. There's actually a wonderful article in the latest turning wheel on that. The woman that um, at the protest uh-huh. that um, was dealing not only with people coming, I can't remember what the protest even was now, but people coming with the opposite views and putting up their signs. Oh, right. And, and her, that she was open to both sides, but then there were people on the peace side that were like, really annoyed that these people were there and so they were, it was fascinating if you, you know, I don't know if you are a member of the Bruce Peace Fellowship but that's a, a wonderful article that it shows exactly why you can't hold on to it even if you're right <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah. yeah are you hungry? are you having the sense of the potluck is coming and the <laughs> greeting is <laughs> We can stop and eat. Yeah. Most of my life, I've had the opposite. I look at them and I say, well, if I acquire this, I'm going to have to take care of it. I'm going to have to store it. I'm going to have to move it. I don't really need it. Uh-huh. And I have to almost force myself. There are certain few things I can get from cold. I can get a warm blanket because I know that way to reduce discomfort. I can buy a new car because I know it will break down as much. And that reduces Mm-hmm. But anything that doesn't 
Mm-hmm. Especially if it's large or fresh. It's an anti-volatility scheme. So it's like you you don't let yourself get things because because then you have to take care. Maybe you were a monk in a past life or a nun in the past life. <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah. I mean. You know, everybody has their different relationship to objects. And, and it's really, it's like, for me, the key is where am I suffering? Am I suffering if, if I was behaving in the way that you're behaving and I'm just always unhappy all the time, then there's, then maybe that's not the right way to be. It's, it's, the key for me with this practice, it, with everything is where does the, the suffering bell ring? Where, where does the dukkha bell go? Ding! There, things are things are not right, and that's where we need to examine. But yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, you desire something, you get it, you find out that it's not what you thought it would be. Yeah. So I, I think a, a natural reaction with myself would be, well, you go and then get something else. <laughs> <laughs> so so how do you break that cycle? Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem, isn't it? Um, a lot of different ways. I mean, one is, is I think we, we tend to space out the, the disappointment. You know, it's like, it's like it's a momentary or even it could be a long period, but then we move on to the next thing. So reminding yourself to stay in that place and to really inquire into it. Oh, it's not, you know, I got the new car and I thought it was going to make me happy, but it's not like, um, the wisdom, it's like you need to apply wisdom in these situations. And knowing that this is like an ongoing cycle of your mind, of the culture, of everybody. So we, so, so it's, it's almost like we have to have a ferocity here if we want to break it. Like, okay, this is, I don't need to find this next thing. It's, it's really tricky. I mean, it's a great question because I think most of us are like this. And I don't know, maybe other people have, have thoughts because I'm, I'm not sure I'm, Hitting it exactly. Right, right, definitely. It's it's we have to if if we want to let go of things, um, if we want to sort of break the cycles, we have to recondition our mind because our mind has been taught the opposite since we were babies. And, may, and if you believe in rebirth for countless eons, that's why we're continuing to be reborn. So it's like it's like you have to go. Um, <laughs> you have to really, really take it on as a project to say, okay, I'm going to experiment with getting less and see what that's like. And oh, well, I've lived with such and such. For, I didn't buy the next car, so actually, life's not that bad. It's not a problem. You know what I mean? Like, so, so really exploring it. Like when I lived in the monastery, I had I owned one pair of shoes and two outfits and a third outfit actually, but it was always moldy, so I never wore it. So I had three outfits or two outfits and a pair of shoes, and you know what? I was completely fine. 
But I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it before I started that I would actually only have two outfits and a pair of shoes. We we don't believe it, you know, that we can't live with we can live without things. Anyway, there's a lot to say. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I guess people who've grown up <clears throat> not affluent <clears throat> couldn't believe it because I, I think maybe I was one step away from that. I had this reflex born into me, plus my parents' depression, so I was not to buy things. That's right. On the other hand, if you look close at where I might be clinging or something, it's part of it is that I don't want to be poor again, and I. Yeah. Know, I. I, have, I save money. <laughs> I do a lot kind of concerts and I kind of turn it anyway. I save money, you know. And but then I I keep going back and say, well, how much of that is enough, you know? And and where can I let go of whatever? Because I have to stay employed, you know. Right. That whole thing and do other things. So it's maybe it's the avoidance of the fear of what it was like to be poor. It's interesting. I mean, this is a place of inquiry. I mean, this is where we can take our Dharma practice into our lives and say, okay, what's going on here? And really examine this and find how do we get free? How do we, how do we clean things out a bit in a way? Yeah. It's different for all of us. I mean, money, nobody talks about money in this culture anyway, so of course we're all confused. And <laughs> <laughs> and so then he actually brought it up too. He said, it seems kind of weird to have to go buy a Buddha. And um, so we had this whole conversation. I said, well, maybe the, the best way to get a Buddha is to have somebody give it to you. So I said, well, maybe, maybe we did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I got it as a gift. So but it was just interesting we had this whole conversation around buying a Buddha. That's great. Yeah. Oh, sure. My pleasure. Great. So on that note, I perhaps we will end. And um, notice when you go to eat, notice your mind around the food. Like, oh, I like that, but I hate that. Oh, you know, I mean, it's eating meditation is great for watching desire. I mean, it's, I guess that's my whole point of my talk is just pay attention. That's it. I mean, that's the whole point of probably every talk (laughs) anyway but happy holidays and happy new year